Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I speak with Luke Grenville Shaw while he's temporarily back in the UK after the coronavirus made things too difficult to keep on cycling. Luke's story is different from most in that on 19 June 2018, he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, a very aggressive and rare type of sarcoma which left his lungs riddled with 13 cancerous nodules. One year after being diagnosed and having been through chemotherapy, surgery, and radiotherapy, Luke wants to show that it's still possible to live with cancer and never give up. On January 1st, 2020, Luke left home on a tandem bike with the dream of cycling 23,000 kilometers from Bristol to Beijing, passing through 24 countries along the way. Luke decided to ride a tandem bike in order to allow other can livers to join him along the way. One major aspect of Luke's adventure is to also raise money for four cancer-related charities as well as a selected charity for each of the legs of the journey. Luke, it's with great pleasure that I have you on the show today. Chris, it's great to be here. Looking forward to it. I always start with the background, so let's start with the background. Uh, why don't you tell us about yourself, where you're from, etc. Right, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm from the UK. I grew up in Bristol, which is where I am right now. And, you know, I had a, a really lovely childhood in a, in a lot of ways. My family was quite sporty, but not like super sporty. Mm -hmm. We did like a lot of orienteering, um, which was the kind of cool activity that we we did as a family. Every Sunday, we would go into the woods with a compass and a map and get lost. That's amazing. Yeah. The weird thing is, though, um, that I didn't really enjoy it very much. Uh, I kind of was always dragged out. And my love of exercise and sport came quite a bit later when I was like 14, when I really started getting into running. And that kind of got me into exercise and fitness in, in a much bigger way. Mm -hmm. You know, I started running, you know, relatively reasonable distances from 14, 15, did like cross country races and stuff. But when it comes to cycling, although I cycled from, you know, to school from a young age, and that was like three miles. Cycling for me completely changed when I got my road bike when I was 17. And suddenly I was like, wow, like 
I didn't realize you could fly on two wheels. Like the the, the difference, the sensations that you know mm-hmm. happen when you're on this sleek thing that just wants to go fast and rewards your the power that you're putting down. It totally changed cycling for me, um, and that's really where my love affair with the bike started. Yeah, I think you're really fortunate because you're still quite young, and road biking has grown a lot in these past ten years or so. Where when I was younger, if you would have been caught on a road bike, you <laughs> would have just been made fun of for the rest of your life. And I, I think it's just really great because I love road biking and just to see that growth in the sport itself and how big it became, especially I think with the UK, like, and, and all these, uh, world championships and Olympic golds and stuff. Uh, I think it's grown really big there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really, for me, 2012, I was a year that I noticed like road cycling took off in the UK and like in London, that's when you started seeing just lots of people out on their bikes, you know, with the, with the Olympics, um, with Bradley Wiggins mm-hmm. winning the Tour de France. Um, it was, that seemed to be a kind of bit of a turning point, but we still got such a long way to go before we're up with sort of say Spain and the, the way that they treat their cyclists. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have previous bike touring experience? Um, so it didn't, well, we went for one bike tour as a family where we cycled down the Rhone Valley when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I look back on that now, you know, and I was just, um, you know, I really wasn't that sporty and fit as a youngster, you know, I didn't enjoy it. You know, I was like bribed to cycle basically every single mile. Um, you know, it felt like such hard work to be honest. Um, um, so that was sort of starting early, but I think it sowed a seed. Um, and when I got my road bike, I, when was this? This was 1st of January, 2013. I was, had a gap year. So, you know, year between finishing school, starting mm-hmm. um, university. And I'd spent the autumn out in Nigeria and I was expecting to go out to the Middle East and to do another bit, bit of work out there. And that had all got delayed. And so I'd been at home for a month, kind of like, really annoyed, twiddling my thumbs. And the day before, so like on, on New Year's Eve, I yeah. was like, hmm, you know, I could, you know, I, I kind of want an adventure. You know, maybe I could cycle from London to John O'Groats, oh, um, nice. which is the two, two furthest points on the UK mainland. And I kind of just like ignored it and kind of carried on. And then about kind of one o'clock in the afternoon on New Year's Day, I was like, you know what, I actually could do that. And I just sort of like said to my parents, I was like, I'm, I'm just going to get my bike and I'm, I'm going to do this. And they sort of, we're like, okay, just just ignore him. That this is gonna isn't gonna come to anything. <laughs> and I I chucked a whole load of things in in a bag. Had a rucksack um, on my road bike. Cycled to Temple Mead Station. Got the last train to Penzance. Arrived there at half past midnight. And then did my best to put up my tent in a car park, which didn't work very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I spent the first night in a bus stop. But I seven days later I did manage to get from Lands End to John O'Groats. Oh, so that was my dipping my toe in cycle touring, if that's what it could be mm-hmm. called. How far did you ride each day? I averaged about 130 miles, I think. Okay. So pretty fast so, or not a, not a dilly and dallying thing or doing the sights so much as putting down the miles yeah. and challenging yourself. Well, that's why I kind of almost hesitate to use the word cycle touring because the first cycle tours and in inverted commas that I did were all cycle boot camps i suppose yeah i like the term somebody oh i forget who it was but um oh maybe it was uh ben davies he said fast touring and i thought that's a good term fast touring Uh, yeah yeah i I think i just i didn't know how to stop and slow down like i could you know i was just focused on the mileage right that was like my only goal and i didn't really 
know, understand how I could enjoy it. I would, you know, I did like lots of races and, you know, triathlons and stuff. Mm-hmm. So my, my mindset was all kind of very goal orientated and, you know, how far could I go each day? Yeah. How, how much pain can you put in those legs and keep going and then to see if you can do it again the next day? Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> idea. Just I, get, sort of I get it. I like that too. Discovering That's- it. Yeah. I read on your website that your parents actually rode off on a tandem bike after getting married. Was that kind of part of the reason why you decided to use a tandem on this tour? Um, it wasn't actually. Yeah, it might have given sort of the the little nugget, the seed, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But really, so you know, the, the day I was diagnosed with cancer, I had this one idea in my mind uh, that it's something if I wanted to do something, you know, if I had one chance to do something, it was cycle around the world. Mm-hmm. Like if if that's all, if I could only do one thing, that's what it's going to be. And originally, my plan was, well, that's just going to be on a road bike, uh, you know, or, or a touring bike, you yeah. know, so solo cycle ride. But, you know, I, th- there was a lot of thought that went into this of actually, you know, I'd, I've done other cycle touring in Morocco, uh, in Egypt and, and Spain. And some of that was of the boot camp variety, the fast variety. Mm-hmm. And I found I, I struggled to enjoy it when I was doing it solo because I you go into this kind of mindset of just miles and not being able to slow down. And yeah. it's lonely. I find it lonely, particularly when there's a bit of a language barrier. And so I was like, actually, I really want to be able to share this with with friends and with my family. Um, that was my initial thought. Uh, you know, these are the people I want to share it with. And also, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite impatient. <laughs> so I don't like sort of just soft pedaling a long time so i was like maybe the the solution is to do this on a tandem so i can get my workout on the front i can share it with someone on the back we kind of take out this aspect of you know you don't need to be the same level of fitness mm-hmm. and hopefully it made it makes it more accessible to a lot of my friends who you know they're, they're not kind of i mean they're, they're sane rather than sort of you know doing stupid stuff the whole time that's a fantastic reason actually i never really would have thought of that it's like then you don't lose them by 10 20 kilometers and have to wait for them you're just they're right there yeah it, it was really just a very you know cold calculating decision of um <laughs> what did i think would work best mm-hmm. um and combine like different elements yeah that's amazing that's a that's a very very good reason uh what were the circumstances around you discovering the the cancer and so, how old were you too yeah, so we kind of go back to I guess 2018, and in, in January I went out to Russia, uh, to Siberia, where I was, I was teaching English. I studied some Russian at school, and I was like, you know, mm-hmm. I had a second gap here after my university. Yeah, I lived in Russia for three years as well, back in the day. Oh, cool. Whereabouts? St. Petersburg. Ah, nice. Yeah. Right. Carry on. So um, (laughs) I I spent a bit of time in Moscow, uh, but most of the time was in Tumen, so east of Yekaterinburg, um, in in the near part of Siberia. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I was was working my, wanted to work on my Russian and was teaching English out there. And uh, I was 24 years old and, you know, in the peak of my fitness, I was, you know, doing 10K running races. I did an ultra marathon through the Ural Mountains. And, you know, I was young, healthy, <laughs> loving my life. But I had this kind of ache in my shoulder and I'd had it for several months, even before I went out to Russia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like any good athlete, um, if you have a niggle, what do you do? You ignore it, right? Absolutely. So, you know, so very successfully for months, I ignored this kind of ache in my shoulder. And it, and it wasn't pain. It was, it was just an ache. 
But eventually, in, in about May, I, I went to the school nurse and I was like, hmm, you know, I think I've got something wrong with my shoulder. And she was like, you know, take your top off. And uh, I was like, fine. And I sort of turned around and she was just like, bonjour moi. Like, you know, oh my, <laughs> my God. God. Yeah, like WTF. And that was really the first moment I realized something was wrong. Was um, she able to see just by looking at you that there's something wrong? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I actually took photos at that time. You know, I, I was living by myself, which didn't make it easier, but I was taking photos of my back because I was like, hmm, something, you know, something's all right. I look back at those photos and I, if, if, you, if someone else looked at those photos, they'd be like, Luke, you are incredibly stupid. Like, like, do, right. were you blind? Like, for real? Like, they basically, the my left shoulder blade had kind of become engorged and swollen okay and i had convinced myself this was a winged scapula and for some reason my muscle imbalances had meant that my scapula had like shifted round of course it has to be a logical explanation right <laughs> yeah you know to, to look at that photo like you think i'm just completely stupid but mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm 24 years old i'm you know <laughs> what's going to be going through my mind you know like of course it's nothing serious but anyway, after I saw this nurse within 48 hours, I was, um, I was back in the UK in, in hospital in Bristol with a biopsy needle sticking into my back. And then, yeah, three weeks later, 19th of June, 2018, the doctors, they told me I had cancer. And I kind of worked that one out by this point because there was also... <laughs> There was also another nodule beneath my left armpit, which had grown to the size of a tennis ball oh, okay. in about that month. So it was pretty, pretty awful. But what, what really blew me away is the fact they said it was stage four cancer. You know, it had spread to my lungs. It was metastatic. And that dramatically changes the prognosis. Mm -hmm. What were their percent? You know, like they always kind of talk in percentage chance of survival and stuff with treatment. What were they predicting at that time? Yeah, so I, I think at least in the UK, they tend not to talk in percentages. Okay. I mean, you can do the research. They were very pessimistic. Yeah. If, if the chemotherapy hadn't worked, then I definitely wouldn't have been around by Christmas. Okay, wow. You know, it was growing incredibly rapidly and it was, it was very aggressive. It was um, already very advanced, you know, and it, you know, if you look at the percentages, they look pretty shit. Yeah. But the, the, the mindset that I tried to have from very early on and not from the day I found out, cause like that day, like up until that point for 24 years, my life had gone according to plan. Like, you know, when I worked hard, I got a result, you know, like, yeah. you know, work hard for exams, you get, you know, you get good grades, you, you know, like you work hard in your sport, you, you do well in races, you know, you put time into your friendships and your relationships and you, you know, it, it all makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And then this was this time when like every expectation, everything I thought I was justified in thinking about my life, it was just like stripped away. It just disintegrated. And that was just incredibly tough, incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. it's it's a process of realization it's like i thought that i would be there for my 10-year uh university reunion yeah you know and in my mind i was like at that point i'm just going to be a memory like maybe they'll kind of remember luke was around here for a couple of years like for you know you know so that was something i was like kind of a bit petrified about but you know just becoming a memory 
mm-hmm. when everyone carries on living their life. Um, so coming to terms and with inevitably that was, they do. I mean, that's just the way it goes, right? I mean, parents know but it's different for parents and stuff, but I mean, friends and stuff. People yeah. have people have to move on, otherwise it's, it's, it makes life difficult. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's I think it's a really interesting one because on one hand you want to be remembered. But on the other hand, you really not want people to move on and then start living their own lives. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's it's, <laughs> it's it's such a difficult one. So the day you found out, you went for a run. If, is that right that I read that? Decide what what yeah. else what else could I do? Right. I mean, you know, it sounds you know that that day I was not feeling up for doing anything, and my my dad knows me pretty well, and. I use exercise to keep my sanity amongst other things mm-hmm. that might sound familiar to quite a few listeners. You know, my release and is, is definitely exercise. That's definitely one of them, a really, really important one. Mm-hmm. And my dad basically pulled me out for a run and he, he gave me some advice then that I I'll never forget. And that's, you know, Luke, the fact that you might be dead in two or three months, that is undeniably horrible and just, unspeakably dreadful Mm -hmm. but there's nothing i can do about it there's nothing you can do about it so but what we can control what we can do what you can do luke is decide how you want to live today and tomorrow and if you've only got two months left to live then surely you want to make the most of this next 60 days because they become so so precious yeah you know and that's that's the attitude I really tried to take forward, but like, my God, it can be really tough. Mm-hmm. I think the rest of that evening, I probably like moped on the, on the sofa, like reading, reading Shantaram, trying to like good escape from <laughs> great book. But what really took me forward was, you know, on one hand, I really wanted to, to try and live my life, you know, as much as possible. But also I think there was a really powerful urge inside of me to say, okay, the odds look really dreadful, mm-hmm. but I want to give myself the best possible chance of being on the right side of that percentage line. Yeah. You know, so, you know, let's, you know, it could be, you know, 90, 10, you know, 95, five. Well, you know what? I want to be in that five. Yeah. And that was really my attitude that you, know, I want to do everything I can to help myself at this point and create my, my own opportunities and give myself the best possible chance through the things that I can control. And exercise was one of those, one of those things. Like I always cycled in to hospital, like for my chemo, I was in hospital for four days at a stretch and I always cycled back and I I took my turbo into hospital and I didn't cycle on every day and I never cycled hard, but I, yeah, I I turboed on on chemo. Um, Nice. Yeah. You know, I, I was doing it for me. You know, there was nothing, you know, that was just me trying to get through my chemo treatment as best as I could. And I knew if I could keep myself in as physically good shape as possible, that was going to help me. And I guess it was also a way for me to try and not simply be a patient. Mm-hmm. When, when you're in hospital, it can be incredibly debilitating that you're someone who's you know, you're prodded and injected and inspected and you're a source of interest to consultants and, you know, the doctors and the nurses. And it can take away from, it can make you forget that you're human and you have autonomy. And actually, you know, like you can still do your stuff yourself. You're not just a patient, you're still a human being. And so for me, exercise is an important way of asserting that to myself. 
And how do you think this exercise, um, what kind of impact do you think it had on your recovery? Is that a better term? How do you think exercise played a role in that? Yeah, remission. Different ways of answering this question. On, on one hand, I think undoubtedly I was just lucky, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could have done all the exercise in the world. And if the chemo hadn't worked, game over. Yeah. On the other side, I really like to think that the exercise absolutely helped. And I, I don't believe for a moment that it didn't help. And I think it helped physically. And I think it helped mentally. Mm-hmm. Like positive mindset. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, looking at what you can control, looking at the, you know, how you can go out and create your own opportunities, even in a really tough situation is, is such a positive step. And so, yeah, like there was a physical side to it that, you know, it, I, you know, was able to deal with the chemotherapy better. I kept, you know, retained my muscle mass better. You know, my physical condition mm-hmm. remained much higher. And I was, I was lucky that the chemo was on a three weekly cycle. So I tend to have about two weeks where I was able to be pretty normal, which, you know, varies from cancer treatment to, you know, chemo between chemotherapy regimes. And I was, mm-hmm. for me, it was one that allowed that. But yeah, the positive mindset, the endorphins, um, the fact that you're you're taking charge of your situation, you're doing small things that can help you. I think that's enormously powerful as well. Okay, yeah. Now you said you were you were at a point prior to this. Uh, well, you didn't say it, but I, I read it that you were actually considering to to go into pro Ironman circuit and uh, mm-hmm. as a very competitive athlete. Do you do you see the future? As you know, not to compare you to Lance Armstrong. I mean, well, he's a fantastic athlete. And aside from all the doping and illegal stuff, um, his return to sport. Do you see your return to sport in a similar kind of sense? That's a really good question. I think the future is still incredibly uncertain. I, I don't know if I'll be here in five years. Mm-hmm. Right now, for me, the most important thing is doing this bike ride, and not not simply the bike ride. And I think we'll come on to discuss it later. Yeah. But everything that comes with with the bike ride. Um, and for me, I found things that I'm incredibly passionate about, you know, which, which isn't, you know, doing Ironman triathlons okay. that, that said, um, it still is an ambition of mine. I would love to give the pro circuit a go. I, I don't know if I'm going to be good enough, but it has been an ambition of mine. And, you know, I'd just love to give it a crack. I've always known I've been best at the, the endurance side rather than, you know, even, you know, a 10 K, road race like running race Mm -hmm. is on the short side for me though i haven't done that much long distance stuff because that's what i was always like that's the future when you're you know a bit older in your late 20s early 30s you've got more endurance anyway i'll wait till then so you know (laughs) watch this space um let's see how things go yeah yeah before we get into the bike tour let's talk about the charities i mean um usually i talk about charities and fundraising after everything but i thought for this interview, it's very pertinent to put it at the forefront. What are the various charities you're raising money for and how did you go about deciding what's what to support? Right. So we, we're we supporting, uh, there, there are four main charities, our four core main charities that we're supporting. And these were all chosen very carefully mm-hmm. and, and they're all to do, do with cancer. So there's 5K Your Way, Trek Stop, Click Sergeant, and Teenage Cancer Trust. And so 5K Your Way, I think, is the most 
superb charity. It's um, have you come across Park Run? Have you heard of the Park Runs? No, I was living in Southeast Asia for quite a while, so I'm a little <laughs> bit of a loop of what's going on in the Western world. <laughs> right. So um, Park Runs, I think. I think they're a legacy. No, that um, I was going to say they're a legacy of the London 2012 Olympics, but I think they started before that. Okay. Basically, they are one of the most fantastic grassroots initiatives that I've ever heard of. Um, and it's running every morning across parks, uh, basically in every city in the UK um, and every town in the UK at nine o'clock in the morning. Everyone or anyone who wants to comes along and does 5K. And that can be running, that can be jogging, that can be walking. You can race it. You can walk your dog. Oh, cool. You know, you can get walked by your child. You know, it's all, <laughs> you know. And I think it's just, it's it's so brilliant because it's it's utterly inclusive. And it's very encouraging that, you know, all you need, you know, it's, it's 5k exactly how you want to do it, get out and be a bit more active than you might otherwise be. And they're now beginning to expand across Europe, probably North America as well, and Australia and a few other places. I think there might be one in Moscow as well, actually. Oh, wow. Cool. And this is an everyday thing or is it a certain day of the week? Yes. It's every Saturday morning, 9am. Um, and uh, apart from when there's coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so basically what 5K Your Way does, the charity, is it hops on the back of this, uh, yeah, on the back of park runs, um, and it's like a support group for, for people with cancer uh, in the sense of, you know, it's, it's a community of people who have gone through cancer, going through cancer to get together and, and run that 5k and you know get people more active and i think that's so important when you do have cancer and for <laughs> and, and for that you know, kind of terminal condition called life to get out and be active yeah and it has the most amazing results as well and it's actually it's the the, the founder was um is uh, lucy gossage who's a former ironman triathlete very formidable and she's also an oncologist she's she's quite the yeah, quite the lady mm -hmm. So they're doing some really amazing stuff. Trekstock also um, helps young adults through exercise in particular, kind of get through their treatment and particularly post-treatment, you know, get active again. Okay. Um, and things to do with, you know, um, kind of confidence and body image, you know, because you, you don't you don't come out of chemotherapy looking like you went in. So, so those two charities both use exercise as a way of dealing with, cancer and that's why i chose them because it's something i feel really passionate about and then click sergeant and teenage cancer trust they were just both really important for me during my treatment they really helped me in, in a personal way and so it felt just like you know absolutely the right thing to support them okay and then we do have a fifth charity as well which changes from leg to leg so we we split the the cycle ride from bristol to beijing into four legs and for each leg we've got a a different fifth partner charity and oh, our okay. first charity is um world child cancer they've got a project running in kosovo uh, which is one of the places that i'm really looking forward to cycling through so we wanted to partner with a charity that was not uk based but kind of i guess working in the area in which i was cycling through and they do some amazing work there with kind of knowledge exchange between particularly with um, a hospital in uh, utrecht in the netherlands yeah yeah Kind of helping the oncologists in, in in Kosovo best 
treatment practices and then also, you know, partnering with other organizations for you know, equipment and uh, other supplies and stuff like that. Oh, that's fantastic. Your original goal, you blew it out of the water, I think. How have you had to change it as you the tour progressed? Right. Yeah. So our original goal was raising £23,000, which is £1 for every kilometer cycled. And I think on day 15, we we smashed that. That's amazing. <laughs> I think it really speaks to just how like generous um, so many people were, like how mm-hmm. much support, like the messages were really incredible. And I guess more than that, it was that it was very affirming, felt very affirming that I was, this is, this is something worthwhile, right? Like this isn't just, you know, this is something people are getting behind and supporting because they think it is impactful, it is helpful. And that gave me a good, yeah, a really big confidence boost, I suppose. And since then, we've we're going even bigger. We're going for 123,000 pounds, and you know, we've I think at 35,000 pounds right now. So, so making some incredible headway, and just really excited to help these charities with the work that they're doing, which is incredible. And mm-hmm. um, I think particularly at this time when yeah, so much of what we're hearing is is about coronavirus, which is of course a huge public health concern and problem. Like cancer still exists, lots of other conditions, every other condition that's existed before still exists, and the charities like really need the support as well. So yeah, absolutely, it's something we're trying to work on. Still trying to keep momentum. It's probably hard right now because I mean, you guys had a lot of different uh, events organized and things like that, and I mean a lot of social events, which now are you can't do right. So. Must yeah, slow things yeah. down a bit. Um, who on your team is managing the charity side of things? And, and on that note, I think you've assembled quite a quite a, a large team to help you manage all these different aspects. Can maybe you can tell us about your team? Yeah, so we've got the most incredible team, and I can't stress enough. Like, whilst most people might just see me, they might see Bristol to Beijing, and they can they'll see Luke. No one would see anything or no one would have heard about Bristol to Beijing. It would be an absolute shadow of what it is uh, without the amazing team that have brought it to life. Mm-hmm. At various times, there's been about sort of 10 people in- involved and you know, basically family and, and friends who have, have stepped in, stepped up. I'm not quite sure what the right term is, but been incredible in not just giving their time, but a lot of thought and very much personally invested in the project as well, which has been really, the the word humbling is overused, but when people do stuff for you or for the project, because you like, because like, because they believe in it, it's like, wow, that's, you know, wow. (laughs) You know, because you're like, I'm not, you know, why are you spending your time doing this? Like, don't you have better things to do? That's the sort of thing I think in my head. So it's really humbling when people do choose to spend their time mm-hmm. on this project and making it as impactful as it has been so far. And hopefully we're really excited to see where it goes in the future. Yeah. And I think it's really noticeable too, because I've gone through your website. It, it's impressive the amount of work that you, you've got, you know, people helping you to, to manage uh, everything. Yeah. From- even the first time I messaged you, it was your cousin got back to me, I believe. And uh... yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Kira, who does like, she's in charge of the social media, like she's amazing. I have a bit of a love hate relationship with social media and she lightens the burden immensely for me. I'm so grateful to her for that. Jeremy has been brilliant and he's particularly on the fundraising side. He comes up with lots of ideas for fundraising, how we can liaise and 
challenging us mm-hmm. to be more ambitious, which is just fantastic to have someone like that on the team. Arthur brings like this incredible intellectual horsepower of like, you know, thinking very deeply about, you know, what do we want to achieve and why and are we being inclusive and you know, what is our message? You know, so it's it's so much a team effort. Yeah. And I'm just the visible bit. Yeah, you just you just pedal. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I just do the pedaling bit. Um What are the main goals of this expedition? Like what are you hoping to accomplish by doing it? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked. Mm-hmm. Because believe it or not, the the main goal isn't actually raising money for charity. And that might sound odd, but actually the, the number one goal is to have fun and to enjoy it. Like, I'm, I'm not going to mince my words there. Like, it was something I came up with, you know, in my mind on, the, on this day that I was diagnosed. I always had this idea in the future that I would go on a cycle tour, but it was always in the future. And when I was mm-hmm. diagnosed, I was like, that's that's got to become now. And... You know, so I, you know, in in a lot of ways, you know, this is a selfish pursuit. You know, I want, you know, I want to go on a tour of the world. So it's to have fun. And my mantra, I suppose, is to try and proactively create my own opportunities to live as rich and fulfilling life as possible. And to me, going on this cycle ride was the way of living as richly and in the most fulfilling manner that I could think of for me. Mm-hmm. And it's very much for me. And I think it's so important that each person listening to this and sharing this with their friends should be like, you know, do what makes what is uniquely fulfilling and enriching to you, because it's going to be different from person to person. And True. that's fantastic. But for me right now, it's, it's cycling from Bristol to Beijing. The, the second goal, which is the sort of, I guess, the more outward facing goal is to rewrite the narrative of what's possible with a cancer diagnosis. And this has become increasingly important to me to make the emphatic statement that I'm not exceptional. A, a lot of people might like to go out and say, oh, Luke, you know, look at you. you you're going on this cycle trip. You, you've had cancer. You're going on this cycle trip. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're just an exception. And th- this is where the tandem comes back in again because the, the third group of people I've been really excited to share this journey with are can livers. And that's the word I have for people living with cancer. And this, this came about because I think it's used very commonly in North America, the term like cancer survivor. Yeah. Right? It's, it's kind of your the go-to nomenclature, right? So. Right. And to, to me, I find this term deeply unhelpful and deeply misleading. Okay. Because it gives this kind of false, to me at least, the way I, I've always heard it and seen it is gives this kind of false sense of certitude that you've, you've beaten cancer, like you, you've won. Mm-hmm. And it really sticks in my mind. I listened to one of Imagine Dragons uh, YouTube videos. I think it's radioactive. And it's dedicated to this guy called Tyler. Okay who you know had cancer and i went onto his website and read his blog and there was this post saying you know like you know i'm tyler i've been doing these things um you know and i've been three months and i've been three months a cancer survivor and then there's a postscript saying that two months after writing this tyler passed away oh wow and to me that was like <sighs> cancer survivor doesn't sum up the uncertainty that so many people face once you've been given a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, you have this constant everyday knowledge in the back of your head that it could come back. Right, right. So I, I wanted to come up with this idea that, you know, 
can liver, someone living with cancer. And that's an appreciation of the the challenges mm-hmm. and the uncertainties that you have to face on a daily basis. And that, that could be it could be chemotherapy. That could be not knowing if you're gonna have children, you know, you know, you're gonna have the opportunity to have a family. Or like as happened to me during the first part of my trip in January, I had the shoulder pain, uh, or this like aching shoulder. And I was like well, kind of petrified that like this was my cancer coming back. Yeah. Um, and I actually took a trip back down to Bristol to have a scan. And you know, thankfully it came back negative. But you know, that's the kind of challenge that, you know, if you kind of have to deal with so much more often. Mm-hmm. But the other side of this turn is is one of optimism. And that is that you can live with cancer. You can still do so much. And for so many people, you still can go out and achieve your dreams. And to me, that's kind of what Bristol to Beijing is about. And Mm -hmm. the tandem allows me to share this with other can livers. And so already I should know exactly, I I should really know, I've had over eight can livers join me already. Amazing. And yeah, for me, that's, it's, it is amazing. How did they find you? Did they find you or you found them? Um, they found me bar one through through social media through various outlets and so if anyone here is listening um and wants to join and wants to help me rewrite this narrative of what we can do with the with the cancer diagnosis then hit me up i'm sure there'll be some links to bristol to beijing in in the description Mm -hmm. and stuff so i would love to hear from you yeah i i remember when i first wrote my basic outline of today's show and i sent it to you and then as soon as i sent that i was looking at your website and it was like can liver i'm like and and i read your thing about not liking the term cancer survivor i'm like ah i gotta change that (laughs) because that's the that's the that's the terminology we we you know we hear all the time and and i do like your perspective that it's you know not necessarily about being a survivor but living and moving forward from there Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because like you know no, no one ever says oh you know he lost to his heart attack, you know like he he lost the battle to diabetes. We have this very peculiar discourse, if you like, mm-hmm. that comes to along with cancer. You know the fighting, the battle, and I think it's deeply unhelpful. And to me, it's important to sort of just take it back a step and say. Let's recognize this as a challenge, but then let's look, let's see what the opportunities are and let's make the most of living because mm-hmm. that's all we can do. Fantastic. Can you tell us about your bike? So you're using a tandem. What kind of bike is it? What's your setup? And um, I know you have, it has a very special name. Maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, right. So the, the tandem is called Chris. Uh, Chris it's is good, a beautiful- good name. Great name. It's uh, the best name. <laughs> Apart from Luke, obviously, but <laughs> so yeah, Chris, bright pink, uh, hot pink tandem uh, with sort of blue blue highlights on the, on, on the forks, um, and it was very deliberately, you know, I wanted to, I wasn't trying to hide, I wanted to make a statement doing this, and I was like, why the hell not? Let's let's go pink mm-hmm. and electric blue. Yeah, I'm sort of not into the super technical side. I mean, it's got roll off gears which I chose because I wanted it to be low maintenance. I, again, have a bit of a love-hate relationship with them. Like, the for those who know roll-off gears, going from eight to seven is always when you're going up a hill. It's always a bit of a faff. If anyone knows a good way of doing it, I would love to know. <laughs> 
Uh, is that just because the step always, between eight and seven is quite large? Or? No, it's not the step. It's the fact that you have to basically, you have to properly cease pedaling. Oh, okay. Because the roll-offs change. Um, you need, when you ro- change the roll-offs, you need to ease off the pedaling, ease off the pressure. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're cruising along, that doesn't really, that, that's not a problem. But when you definitely are putting down power is when you're going up a hill. And that's also when you need to change down. And it's difficult to change from eight to seven. Mm, <laughs> so, okay. so that is a little bit annoying. But anyway, it's, you know, it works just fine. And I, to be honest, you know, I haven't had to like clean cassettes or anything. So I should be grateful. Yeah, I've got a trailer on the back, which is a, a Bob Ibex um, or B-O-B mm-hmm. Ibex, which is fantastic because... The reason that a trailer was essential, I suppose, is because I was going to have a variety of different people joining me. And I just wanted to have that storage space of like, if you bring your rucksack, we can just bung it in the trailer. Yeah. The, the flip side to that is, of course, like you never have enough space. And just because I've got more space, it just means that like, we're, <laughs> just, we're carrying more stuff. So I haven't really solved that one yet because, um, you know, I'm carrying, say, two sleeping bags and a tent that's big enough for two people. But people very unreasonably, of course, they still want to bring like their own clothes and stuff. And that takes up space. And I'm like, <laughs> how do I fit this in? And you have saddlebags on top of that or? Uh, yeah. yeah. Four saddlebags on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> this thing does not go fast. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so it's about 12 feet long or something. and Yeah, it, it sort of behaves a bit like, well, it's about as long as a bus and it handles like a tank. <laughs> nice. What kind of what kind of bike is it? What what brand is it? Um, it's a Landscape, which uh, so there's a, in, for those in the UK. There's an amazing bike shop or tandem shop called the Tandem Shop, and the guy who runs that, Pete Bird, he is a bit of a tandem aficionado. He can do basically anything. It seems you know, like do you want an electric, you know, electric motor on it? We can do that. Do you want it with a like a carbon chain thing Mm -hmm. whatever that's called like a yeah whatever like a belt drive (laughs) exactly one of those you know they can do that um you know drop handlebars all sorts of gears you know any colors you know so really really great really thorough and so yeah that's that's where we got chris from and the name stems from your brother i believe right is this something you want to talk about or you want to avoid uh no i'm happy to talk about it so John, John's my brother and, um, you know, I think probably as many, many people can relate to, you know, he was my, um, 18 months older than me. And so those, you know, with siblings, you can imagine like when we were growing up, Love just hate. like the kind of constant <laughs> fight, you know, the, I think it was my parents noticed, but yeah, the, the, you know, the constant fighting, we were constant, you know, whether it was like, I don't know who could, you know, swim fastest in the pool or like who could do their homework fastest or, you know, I don't know, whatever it was like fighting over like Warhammer, like we were, we were pretty cool kids. So we, we were into Warhammer. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and anyways, it's like, you know, John, John went to university and at that point we discovered like we didn't have to spend time with each other. We, we started, um, you know, enjoying each other's company a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he got into rowing at university. Then I got into triathlon at about the same point, uh, which was great. We each had our individual sports that we could, you know, work hard at and, and you know, do well at. And the, the problem came when John got into cycling. 
because initially that was fine because I could just, you know, I could smash him and that, that was great. Um, <laughs> but the, the trouble came that, you know, after a while, like it became more and more difficult to like drop him and then like keep my wheel ahead and you know, get to the top of the climb. Uh-huh. And there was this, um, it was a Christmas day, uh, 2016, we were going for a ride around the Mendips, which is just some nice hills to the south of Bristol. And there was this climb and I, you know, John just sort of, he, he beat me to the top and that was the time I really remember I was like, okay, <laughs> like, but it was actually fantastic. You know, like at that point, our relationship had like matured enough, like the, it didn't drive us mad when one of us was the better than the other. And mm-hmm. we actually saw that we could like help each other on some better things, um, you know, and push each other in our training. You know, and John, I think he, he's, he rode, uh, I think it's like a 52, like a long 52 for a 25 mile TT. So like pretty, pretty good. You know, he's a very decent cyclist. Anyway, got off topic a bit. No worries. Um, That's great. Anyway, so the first time I, I went in for my chemotherapy, so we're fast-forwarding a bit, or going back two years. So the first cycle of my chemotherapy, you know, I, I, I was there, and um, the, the final morning I was there, like the phone goes at 4 a.m., which is a bit odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum, who was there with me in, in the room, like kind of just with me, you know, she picks up the phone. And, and she's told John was out running in the Lake District. He fell and he died. Jesus. And he was 25. It's pretty, uh, I mean, there's never a good time to find out some kind of news like that, but while sitting with your other child in the hospital, I can't imagine what your parents went through. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, everyone grieves differently. Mm-hmm. And grief comes in stages, stages of realization, I suppose, and just ways that you you experience it. But, you know, um, yeah, I I feel for for me, it's so important to to talk about John and partly to kind of keep him alive, which is, I guess, something we alluded to sort of at the beginning. Yeah. But I, you know, so many, I feel like it's very, it could be quite easy for people to say, oh, Luke, you know, you're unlucky. You know, you've got cancer. I don't have cancer. You know what? I'm probably going to be fine. And I, to everyone who thinks like that, I would say, think about John. This is a guy, PhD student at Cambridge University, going to do amazing stuff with his life. And then in the space of 10 seconds, before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. 
Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Go on. Mm-hmm. And that could just happen to any of us, and we just don't know. And so I think it's so important that we we do everything that we can to live today and tomorrow as fully and richly as possible. And like, don't do it for anyone else. Like, do it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like this this to me, it's like a fundamentally selfish act. But I also think that by doing things that we really enjoy and we are really passionate about, that that also just has a really positive impact on everyone else around us. So to me, it's a virtuous circle. But I'm like. You do do this for you. Like, make sure you do the stuff that makes you fulfilled and happy, and living a rich life. Mm-hmm. You know, do it for you. And there's some stuff that you can do today, and whether that's like you know putting your you know, for me, it's like putting my phone on like airplane mode if I'm having a conversation with someone. So I'm like definitely not distracted. I can have a proper, really quality conversation, though obviously not not via WhatsApp because it doesn't work so well um, on airplane mode. But. <laughs> yeah, mine's on mute and my dad called earlier and it started ringing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and then there's like bigger stuff as well of like, you know, what direction do you want your life to go in? Uh, like what stuff like really gets you excited? And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. But like what steps are you going to take to maybe find that? Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Food for thought. Luke, thanks for, for sharing that. That was pretty um, deep and I think a, an emotional thing to talk about, but I think um, it kind of lends itself to everything we've been talking about. So much appreciated. And now I just yeah. need to try to brighten myself up a bit because I'm feeling pretty morose. Um, can you tell us, let's let's move on to the actual tour. Mm. So you started January 1st in the UK mm. and mm. obviously you cycled across the UK. Do you want to tell us about your roots, um, things you experienced along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also like to say that the, the I really hope the message isn't, I guess it's, it's sobering, but for me, I, I'm, I really like to, I'm hoping I'm bringing like positivity that the, this, this is, it's a kind of a, a suggestion that people might like to just do more and live more. And like, you know, this is a chance just to really embrace life rather than going, Oh, you know, like, um, but maybe the two need to go hand in hand a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, started 1st of January from Bristol, just up the road from where I was treated, uh, where I had my chemotherapy. So for me, that was like a really important symbolic, uh, location of a, a, what I hope, you know, what is a new chapter. And then I, I made the decision as a team, we made the decision that the first month and a half would be spent touring the UK, which wasn't the original plan. Okay. But there were, there were two things, two main strands behind this. Firstly, was to make it that much more accessible to, um, to can livers, to, to friends, to family, to come and join on the back of the tandem. Mm-hmm. Makes it much easier to join for a day or two days, you know, if, if it's just in the UK. And actually, you know, for a lot of people, I was passing through where they were living. So that made it really straightforward. The, the other thing that I really wanted to do was try and, I guess, um, you know, for want of a better term, like spread my message or like my, my outlook. And that was going to the Click Sergeant and Teenage Cancer Trust uh, centers throughout the UK 
there ended up being more red tape there than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. So actually it's, I, I gave like talks at schools and at universities and that was something I felt incredibly privileged to do, to be able to share what I was doing and perhaps give people some food for thought as well of what they wanted to do. Okay. That's something I found very rewarding to do. Um, and you said you, you did take a detour back home to, to check in with the doctors too at one point. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I went up to, you know, so went, ran across to Cardiff, then all the way up, I dipped into Scotland, <laughs> only just like Gretna Green, but still <laughs> <laughs> very tenuous. And then I went across to, to Durham, which is where I did my undergraduates um, mm -hmm. and went back down south by uh, by Cambridge, by Oxford, by London uh, before heading across to Dover. Oh, well, so you did so a proper, you did a proper loop of England, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. It, it and it took about um, six weeks. I could have done it much quicker, but there was lots of other stuff happening around the the side as well. So it wasn't none. Of, this has never been about getting to Beijing. It's always been to me about what happens along the way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm sort of fortunate to not have too many external time pressures, at least that I know of. So. What was the uh, the longest duration, shortest durations that people joined you for on the back of uh, Chris? Um, so, so far, the shortest duration has um, it's probably been about five minutes. Uh, oh, okay. That was when I was in Duisburg in, in Germany. And I gave, um, so I, I started doing warm showers and like, oh my God, it's like the most amazing community of people. It like, is, it really is. Being just blown away by how how kind everyone has been and made me like really excited to, to host when I, when I finish and there's, there isn't kind of lockdown everywhere. Mm. Um, so yeah, but the, um, the, the chap, Eric, who had hosted me, I like offered to you know cycle him to his work. And so we did that. And to me, that's a win. Like anyone who joins on the tandem for like for, for a mile or for, for a month, like it's about sharing the experience and, you know, that, that's what the most important thing, I think. Yeah, of course. And how about the longest? The longest? I was trying to think. It hasn't been super long. It's mm, four or five days, something like that, uh, with a couple of different people. And then you kick them off and say, enjoy the walk home? <laughs> so that's, the, that's um, yeah, yeah. When it's someone I really don't like, I just like, right, off you go. <laughs> um, so I think you know, this chap called Arthur was going to be, uh, who's actually part of the Bristol to Beijing team. Okay. He was planning to join me for a month in, in May, you know, but obviously everything has mm -hmm. changed now. But, you know, the idea was to sort of keep it flexible. And there's been this real tension in my own mind about how to combine flexibility of, you know, how far I cycle each day, the ability to take detours or, you know, just spend an extra day in a place because it's a nice place to stay in mm -hmm. versus the organization that is required for someone coming out from the UK to sort of book their flights and, you know, or indeed to something you know, coming out from an, another country, you know, to book their flight and, you know, need to be at an airport at a, at a certain day at a certain time. True. True. And that's not something I've really managed to resolve yet. It's tough because yeah. you don't want to be on a timeline, right? Like you said, it's not so much of a schedule. It's I want to experiment and explore and interact. And then all of a sudden, if you have somebody on the bike, 
you're thinking, okay, we have to hit 70 or 80 miles a day so that we do get to this destination. And maybe you miss many things along the way, right? And people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tough one. Yeah, it, it, it is a tough one. I um, There's a guy called Dom Gill, where the idea of this originally came from. He, back in 2005, I think it was, cycled the length of the Americas on a tandem and just spontaneously picked people up on the way. And that's where the idea of this came about originally, to just like invite people along from the places that you're passing through. Mm-hmm. And that's still something I'm hoping to do but it hasn't yet come to fruition, that part of it. Yeah, you need to find those hitchhikers. <laughs> exactly, the hitchhikers just try and look for people who are looking very desperate. <laughs> Your mom came to Switzerland. Did you guys cycle yeah, at all too? Or were you were you planning to cycle together or was it more of a, just a break from the bike? Um, it was a mix, actually. We did some cycling, which was was really nice. I I was hoping my mom would be, you know, she's, she's done a lot of cycling, uh, a lot of cycle touring. But, you know, she, she was more enjoying the view and leaving the pedaling to me. And mm-hmm. I sometimes like, hey, mum, like, <laughs> fancy just pedaling a little bit harder up this hill. <laughs> Which is something, yeah, I don't know, that's a sort of, you know, mother-son sort of thing, I sort of feel like. No, but also it was really nice that we able to take a really relaxed pace and just mm-hmm. do some of the things that I'd really hoped to have done a lot earlier. And I guess, like, just like stopping by the side of Lac Le Mans, you know, near Geneva, just for a coffee, like just brewing up a coffee by the side of the lake. Yeah. And just taking that time because it was a lovely afternoon, like sunny afternoon, blue skies, like that sort of thing was really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So combination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is where the kind of the tandem really comes into its own that like that wouldn't have happened without the tandem and being able to share this with my mum. Yeah, it was, it was like very special time for us both. I feel like if by doing this, you, it forces people to join you on your tour where if you're, your mom had just flown out and you were on a bike, well, then it's unlikely she would have brought a bike with her. And so then it becomes a, a busing around and doing sites in like Istanbul or something, but not really carrying on with the mission. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. So like actually that afternoon we were bike by like Le Mans, like brewing up this coffee mm-hmm. and we had this couple who... You know, that we had a chat with them and kind of explained what we were doing. And then they went off and they came back um, 10 minutes later and they said, oh, you know, if, if you want, like, we'd love to have you stay this evening. Like our, our place is about an hour away, you know, sort of a bit away from the lakeside. Um, and we sort of thought about it and and we took them up on that offer. And we, so, you know, so maybe so we, we'd spent like, you know, the latter part of the afternoon by the lake. And so we set off at about six um, as it was beginning, you know, it was turning to dusk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to my shame, I was following Google Maps because of super lazy navigation, which is something I'm like going to change. I, I've decided I've made a pact with myself and I'm going to put it on radio or on podcast right now. Excellent, do it. Hold me to it. That I'm going to use paper maps when I get back on the road. Oh, wow. So, big, wow. That's a big jump. <laughs> it's a big jump. I was expecting you to say ride with GPS or something. Oh, <laughs> This is an emphatic statement that I'm running with using ride with GPS. Like you heard it here first. Um, no, with paper maps. So there's more room to screw up and ask people where I'm going and like have those conversations. Oh, that's a good, yeah. It was just too easy just to sort of head down. Isolate, you know, even when cycling, even when touring, just to isolate yourself because you're like, oh, I've got the route in front of me. I know where to go. Like, mm-hmm. And 
of course, like you know, Google Maps. Um, you know, there there are trust issues between me and Google Maps now. So that evening, Google Maps took us um, up in, in, into someone's vineyard, and <laughs> then you know it was a sort of gravelly track that then turned to dirt, and then it turned to mud, and then it kicked up at fifteen percent. And so we just had, you know having to like, work so hard to get up this hill. And eventually we managed to get onto the, the, the road proper again. And we're mm-hmm. like, okay, we, no matter what Google says, we're, we're sticking to this road now. Yeah. Where if you had a paper map, you could have said, can you draw us the best route to get to your house? And they could have just taken a pen and go and made a line. Yeah, exactly. And I think mm-hmm. the other really nice thing about that is then the map becomes a living document. It becomes a record of the mm-hmm. trip. You know, it's, it is good. I, I had a map when I lived in Korea teaching English that mm. I had a motorbike and I'd do some trips around the country. Oh, cool. And every time I did one, I took that map out when I got home or after and I'd like trace the route I took. And, and it was just like, yeah, like you said, this living document. I still have it. It's in a box somewhere. I found it recently. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. Like those are the places I went. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it really jolts memories in a way that if you did your navigation on your phone, like wouldn't happen in the same way just it wouldn't be there mm-hmm. yeah so uh, yeah absolutely what uh mechanical issues have you had I, I think i saw that you've gone through a couple sets of handlebars have there been any others yeah so the handlebars that came about because i had jones's jones handlebars originally mm-hmm. which are these kind of u-shaped ones yeah and actually i found they really didn't work for me yeah so basically after having like surgery on my left shoulder i have one less muscle there and it's just not as strong and just the sort of the it was very sort of side to sidey and it was putting quite a lot of strain on my shoulders and okay. so i just went back to a sort of straight handlebar setup which worked a lot better i think it just puts the shoulder in a stronger position it, it felt like mm-hmm. and particularly you know, on a tandem with a lot of weight you know there's you're you know you're constantly just uh subconsciously you know i'm just using your your arms to sort of uh, balance the bike and you know i got back on my road bike when i um popped into bristol um for for the scan and i was like my god it's trying to like throw me off like the 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 wheel was just like going the front wheel was just going like wiggling backwards and forwards backwards Mm -hmm. and forwards and i was like what's what's happening and i was like it's me because i'm so used to sort of doing the adjustment yeah going from mountain bike to road bike too even i find that there's a massive difference in how like the stability i feel like i'm all over the place on a road bike after i come off yeah. a mountain bike right the other big mechanical thing was we started off with some tires that just weren't of like super high quality mm-hmm. and got quite a few punctures and then i uh, went to this incredible bike shop in utrecht and i'm just trying to remember the name beagle bikes in utrecht would highly highly recommend this place the, the the guy there was just you know it's like a mecca for touring oh okay and it was just the perfect i'd kind of had a bit enough of riding that day and i basically spent about five hours in his shop like chatting he, he'd done like his own cycle tour for three years like in the early you know early 2010s or something and you know, it was just a wealth of knowledge some really lovely bikes and that's where i got my saddle which is now a brooks I think we decided think it was we a, said B17. It was a B17, yeah. Yeah, um, which was a total revelation to me. I didn't realize like a saddle could feel like a seat. Like <laughs> before it was always just something that kind of like juts up into your groin area. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's, 
you just pop off the saddle from time to time. But this is so much more comfortable. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so that's, and that's where I got, what are they? The, the Schwal Mondial, I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. Schwalbe um, Naked Tires, yeah. Yeah. So the, it's their sort of super hard wearing version and I haven't had any problems since. So that's really good. Excellent. And aside from changing from eight to seven on the roll half going uphill, things have been going pretty smooth. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, with, with the tandem, you have to um, adjust the ta- chain tension mm-hmm. with like a eccentric bottom bracket. And, you know, that's, well, the, the first time I had to do it, I kind of realized I couldn't remember how to do it, which was, which was a bit embarrassing. Is, you know, one of those like very humbling moments that you have on the road that you think you kind of, you know, like, oh, I'm doing this big cycle ride. I'm doing this adventure. I know what I'm doing. And then you find out that you really don't. <laughs> I was going to say, what are some of the other challenges that you've had with riding this tandem? Yeah, what are the challenges? That's a really good question. I think like speed, is speed an issue? Like, is it hard to to maintain a good speed on the bike? Or do you find you always just tend to go really slow and like... Uh, yeah, basically just going really slow. Yeah, that's been a bit of an adjustment. Like the, certainly the expectations, you know, like I've come from riding a road bike where, you know, 18, 20 miles an hour very very doable Mm -hmm. and then on the tandem you know like 10 miles an hour well 10 11 12 miles an hour that's kind of like that's it um yeah and there have been sections when i've been riding by myself um and that's usually yeah like 10 miles an hour so you know you have to change your mindset otherwise it gets depressing (laughs) yeah i did i really enjoyed that one video of you trying to you're like you were look. You're on the edge of a hill, and you're like, "Okay, oh god, there are no ways yeah. around this." I've checked thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so heavy. <laughs> what about accommodations, like maneuvering the bike? I think I I, I read something about elevators or lifts, and um, I mean, it's a oh, pretty yeah. long rig. How do you manage it when you're going someplace? Oh goodness, it's it's like with with difficulty. <laughs> It's not easy. I think, you know, you have to see it as like part of the charm of having a tandem. Like <laughs> it's, it's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Like I think my first experience was when I was staying in Nottingham at the, at the travel lodge. Like most of the time I try not to stay in hotels, um, you know, so I've, it's, it's pretty uncommon, but that was like well, one of the times I did. And then most of the time I camp or use warm showers. Okay. I think those are my, the, the two go-tos. Um, and they were like, you know, so I was like, okay, you know, can I, can I take the tandem? And like, yeah, that's fine. You can take it into your room, which is amazing. And I was like, but it was like, you have to go up a floor. And I was like trying to get this tandem into the lift and I had it on the back wheel. And I was just like, this is not fitting. Um, <laughs> no way this is fitting. And so, you know, then just having like, I was by myself at that point. So I just had to like carry the tandem up the stairs. And I was like, oh. Great. <laughs> well, at least you're in the UK where it's, um, I mean, I think probably most of the route is quite safe leaving some things behind as you drag stuff up and down. But uh, I know I've read of people in South America and, you know, they, they go to check in and their their bikes inside the inner quad and then they come down and their bikes are gone. Wow. And people just be like, I don't know, because, you know, criminals saw the opportunity and, and then it's gone. Yeah, but for you, you're well, in, yeah, you know, Western Europe and even Eastern Europe and mm-hmm. stuff, it's not the same as the the possibilities and risks of South, yeah. South America. Well, absolutely. You know, so far I've yeah, I'm, I've got to Central Europe. So yeah, in in terms of the 
I don't know. Well, at least I it's impressive. Difficult parts, but suddenly the bits that are going to be very different mm-hmm. from from Britain, like they haven't arrived yet. So you know, it's very much just getting going. Mm-hmm. Well, at least you do speak Russian. The Russian will help a lot. That'll be a, that'll be a nice thing that most people I've talked to that have cycled through Central Asia don't have going for them. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And actually, I'm beginning to actually, I'm, I'm pretty much decided I want to change my route a bit to still go through the Balkans, but then go up into Ukraine and through um, sort of southern Russia and down to the Caucasus that way. Okay, nice. Yeah, that'd be excellent. Yeah, I'm just really excited to speak some Russian. And like, are you just going to go pages. from um, from the Ukraine? Are you going to cut into the Crimea? Is it possible to go into Crimea from Ukraine? Because I don't know if they've opened those mm. borders. Yeah, I'm probably not going to go into Crimea. I just I assumed that it would be too difficult. Yeah, um, I was there in 2007. It is phenomenal. Such a beautiful place. But I don't like that was when it was part of Ukraine. So I don't know if you mm. can easily get in there anymore. Yeah. I um I went there with my brother actually um back in 2013 when I was on my gap year he joined me out in um in Ukraine and we went to Crimea together um okay. to you know uh Simferopol Balaklava yep. Bakhchysarai Bakhchysarai was so cool isn't it yeah yeah I mean you know it's this this place with uh you know a mosque um Roman and this ruins amazing and... yeah it, you know very this is like influx of very non-Slavic culture. Mm-hmm, which was very interesting so to you're, sort of see so that you're saying focus. you're looking at now changing your route again a bit so heading up through ukraine and then into russia down into the Caucasus. yeah that's right so if anyone you know knows that area or like has recommendations would love to hear more about that but i i've become very interested in the the theme of i guess challenges and opportunities I guess because of the experiences that mm-hmm. I've had. And I think that's kind of led to me really wanting to be able to talk to people in depth, preferably in their own language, about the challenges that they faced. And so it's just an idea at this point, but going through parts of Eastern Ukraine, which, you know, there's still a proxy war going on, yeah. which isn't reported about in the Western media, you know. Well, I think if you go up towards, um, oh man, my, my Ukrainian geography is going downhill but um harkov in the north northeast yeah if you go through harkov it's a rel- it's a very safe area and so you can get into russia mm-hmm. from there and then cut south nice idea thank you yeah that sounds cool and it's a university town super fun oh even better yeah awesome no um, that's planned <clears throat> yeah i spent quite a bit of time in ukraine i had some friends that did peace corps there from the u.s and um my heritage oh, is ukrainian cool. so i spent a little bit of time exploring ukraine and it's very nice. Oh, right. Oh, nice. Cool. Whereabouts? My dad's grandfather, so my great-grandfather, um, left Ukraine in the early 1900s, and um, he was from Lviv area, so the west, far yep. west, mm-hmm. or Lvov, depends how you want to pronounce it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I've, I've been there, found family, some ancestors, like long, long distant relatives, and um, yeah, it's very, very cool, very interesting. Next, yeah. Next time, do I'll you- do it by bike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Large parts of it are pretty flat. It's um, mm. so not, not bad for cycling. No, exactly. Um, so let's, sorry, let's get back to this. And um, what have been some of the highlights so far in your European leg of your trip? Where are you planning to go, like you said, for the future? And um, how did you come up deciding to call off the tour for the moment or putting it on mm. hold? Yeah, uh, re- really great questions. So uh, yeah, m- most enjoyable 
things so far. It's definitely been the people. I guess it's not much of a surprise to me because like, I think long ago, not that, well, a, a little while ago, I was like actually sort of seeing things mm-hmm. leaves me pretty cold. Like, okay, you, great. You've seen them. They're impressive. Kind of, but so what? But for me, it's really the people that make, and I think, you know, for so many people who do cycle touring, it's like the people that you meet along the way that like make it special and memorable. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to stay with this, with this family in Cologne, Michael, Irene, and their five-year-old daughter, Mogjan. And Michael and Irene had gone for their own two-year cycle ride maybe seven years ago, and were just full of stories and advice and they were just like super super cool yeah nice in like in, in everything but how they were like raising like Mojan, you know like she was this like super cool girl who was like she, she used like you know not just like he and she but also the kind of diverse pronoun mm-hmm. like you know like really progressive uh you know like maybe it's just buzzwords in some ways but like they you know they were vegan and just really cared about their happiness and satisfaction rather than like pretenses and like worldly success or you know like not that they were unsuccessful but like their just priorities were so cool i was Mm -hmm. like wow they were very inspirational to me so that was definitely one highlight and i think cycling through switzerland like the natural beauty there was just amazing um the lakes and the, the mountains and you know i've been to switzerland before and you know, like around Geneva and Lacalmont is is nice, but what like blew me away was just the other places and the other lakes that were just pristine and just the most gorgeous camping spots, like to be just a stone's throw from from the water and to like wash there and watch the sunset and the stars. Like that was just so special. Mm-hmm. And when you get to all these little places that are not on the tourist trail, like then you start to really see the beauty of the country, right? Yes. Yeah. And I guess at the back end of my cycling, when I was like, I ride in Interlaken, like all the tourists had disappeared by that point. And that meant it was a lot easier to like meet people who are living in Interlaken. And I got to meet some really very, very cool people there as well. And, um, you know, Ray, who was, you know, used to work um, as like on the Arctic uh, research and Antarctic research bases. Oh, wow, cool. Now does paragliding another couple who had walked uh, all the way to Paris, kind of environmental pilgrims, you, you know, so you get to meet some incredible people and share ideas and thoughts and experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really cool to me. And I think a lot of people. So moving forward, you were saying after reaching the Caucasus, I'm assuming, I, I actually, I saw in your original plan, you're looking at going through Iran. You do know it's almost impossible, right? As a British person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I do. I, I would love to go through Iran, uh, mm-hmm. and I unfortunately don't have another passport, so it might it might all be too difficult. I studied Persian for a year at university. No way, I'm my wife's Persian. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, we got so much in common here, like Russian, Persian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do, do you don't happen to speak any Arabic? Uh, no, I don't speak any Arabic. I'm learning Persian. I mean, I, I, I understand a fair bit of words now, but I'm, I'm not Excellent. at a level of making like proper sentences or anything. Okay. Oh no, that's awesome. Um, sounds like you you probably be getting into into Iran a bit easier than me. I've been three times. Yeah. Oh wow, that's the dream. That is the dream. Yeah. Anyway, so I'd um I'd love to go to Iran, but that's you know that might well not be possible because mm-hmm. of 
you know, it would be, it, I think it's possible. But yes, it's difficult to get a visa, but possible. But then you need to have a guided tour, yeah. like a tour guide with you all the way and staying in a hotel every night. And So yeah. if, if you can't get into Iran, I assume you'll be in Azerbaijan and then you'll take the boat to Kazakhstan. Is that the idea? Um, Probably. I haven't ruled out cycling back up into Russia and, and around oh, the okay. Caspian Sea. Mm-hmm. Well, probably because I'm naive about like actually how enjoyable it will be. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, no, I'd love to see a few more cities in Russia. And by the time I get there, I might be like, come on, time for Kazakhstan already. Yeah. I was, I was reading recently about and looking at um, something about crossing over from Azerbaijan into Dagestan and, and it just got coming up with warnings saying like, don't do this. It's too dangerous. <laughs> Dagestan is not safe. It's not, you know, Chechnya is quite safe now. Dagestan is not. And, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, keep it in mind. Um, yeah, I, I will. Like, I'm not, I'll come clean. I don't do exhaustive amounts of research. Like, maybe, maybe I should. But it's I, I, my approach to traveling is I kind of I'll kind of work it out when I get there. Like the, yeah, fair when I when I went cycle touring in Morocco the first night I, I flew into Marrakesh and I kind of like looked on booking.com or something at like a hostel that I was, you know, I was like, oh, this one looks good. And I made a note of the address. But like I didn't this is, you know, I didn't. So I arrived there and I had the address and I had a paper map. But I didn't have any. I didn't have a smartphone at the time, or I didn't have data, or like internet, or whatever. So I was trying to find this hostel, which I'd like. I didn't even have the name of it, um, but I had like you know it was an address. Know, what, yeah, I had an address, and the only map I had was you know the back of my Morocco map, which had a like oh this is Marrakesh, which didn't really have the detail required. Um, just to give you a flavor, <laughs> level of planning, I don't put into something. And you're looking scripts. to get back into the paper maps, yeah. <laughs> recipe for success right <laughs> yeah learn by trial or fire yeah all right excellent. Maybe not learn, it seems. just a uh, one tip i've learned from a lot of people china visas tend to be easier to get in tbilisi in georgia um, oh, so a lot okay. of people tend to do their their longer stop there where they're there for a week or two to get their visas and stuff sorted out so that's oh. a, that's an idea sure. just keep in mind for which countries in particular china, china and, and uzbekistan i think people tend to get done there Cool. Yeah. Really useless to know. Thanks. No worries. So um, I think I know you're, you've got a, you've got something coming up, so we don't have too much time left. So what made you decide to, to put the whole tour on hold for the moment? I mean, aside from the obvious COVID-19 or more so the why, and then uh, yeah. what's next for you? So I think we can talk about your idea for a podcast. Yeah. Right. So when, when it came down to why I, why I stopped or paused rather, it, it wasn't because the borders had closed. The real reason for me was that the, the purpose behind this trip was to enjoy the journey and, and, and the experiences and, and meet people and, and share the journey with people. And because of all the restrictions, it became basically impossible for anyone to join me from the UK. And for a few days, I thought I'd get people to join me from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And then it became very clear that, you know, everyone was doing the sensible thing and sort of, you know, not joining some random stranger. And so, you know, I wasn't sharing with anyone and I wasn't going to be able to sort of share the trip with anyone. And, you know, that all the cafes and the bars and restaurants had closed. So it's then very difficult just to meet people full stop and... Mm-hmm. You know, part of the reason for doing a trip is to have those conversations, kind of get a feel for the 
culture and identity of a place. And that became very, very, very challenging. And so I was like, you know, what am I doing this for? You know, I could try and keep on going east, potentially in a clandestine fashion, but that would be to miss the purpose of why I set out to do the ride in the first place. Mm -hmm. And where were you when you decided to go home? Um, In Central Europe. You were, oh, okay. You were in Central Europe already? I, I was in I was in Central Europe already, but I, I won't go into more detail. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> anyway, but what I've been doing since you know, like the, the plans ahead, like I was setting up my my own podcast. Um, so very much learning from you and and other people how to do podcasts. Mm-hmm. And um, my what really excites me and I find fascinating now is how we face challenges and how we create opportunities out of them or how we seize opportunities in spite of those challenges. And that's something that I've tried to do, but I feel it's it's just so fascinating. And for me, this is a podcast which is hopefully full of positivity and the strength of the human spirit of people who have gone through incredibly tough times, but mm-hmm. come out having done some incredible things. And then also talking with people who you uh, you know, th- through research uh, or, or, or through, you know, like leading thinkers um, have insights into sort of you know, mindset or positivity mm-hmm. or, the, you know, where does exercise come in or, you know, biology and all these different things. So that's that's the, the podcast and the, and the idea of it in a very sort of conversational and informal setting. Okay. There was a blog post called The Cost of Heading East, Opportunities Ahead. Is this what you meant by Opportunities Ahead? Was it about the podcast and um, or was there more to it? Yeah, so I think some people might have thought or expected that, and maybe I would have done as well, that, you know, with the trip cancelled, paused rather, you know, that would be a huge blow. But I was just very quickly able to accept it. And I was like, right, you know, this has clearly happened. This is clearly a thing. How can I make the most of this time? Because, like, we're not going to get this time back at the end of the day. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, sure, there are lots of things that we can't do that we'd like to be able to do. But we're not going to get this time added on like later, like having three months added on to the end of our lives. So like, what can we do to live as much as we can now? Because otherwise we're wasting even the opportunities we do have now. And so this podcast is one way. I'm trying to put some pen to paper with what's happened over the last two years and see what comes of that. Um, And I'm working on my Russian. So that's keeping me busy. Good. I've been meaning to do that for years. (laughs) It just slowly gets Ugh. worse and worse. Where can uh, where can people find out more about you as well as your fundraising goals and uh, whatnot? Right. Yeah. So as websites, uh, bristol2number2beijing.org. Or if you go on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and you search Bristol2Beijing, then you'll you'll find all of our yeah, all, all of our stuff. And then there's also our Virgin Money giving page. If if anyone wants to think about donating, then just a Virgin Money Giving for on Bristol to Beijing. Excellent. So what's happening in the UK, every Thursday at eight o'clock, everyone goes out into the streets and bashes the pans to support the NHS. And I'm about to do that right now. And I, I thought I'd make a bit of noise myself. We can keep this rolling. All right, let's do it. Yeah. I'm a little bit distracted the last few minutes because I'm just walking out the door. No, that works. We can do this on the air. Yeah, why not? <laughs>
what I wanted to ask you before we end things off, thanks for um, taking us outside there. I'm actually going to, I'll cut some of that music and put it at the, <laughs> I'll put it at the outro instead. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go, I wanted to ask, do you see this tour possibly going further after Beijing? I know that would change the whole name and the dynamic, but is it a Bristol <laughs> to Beijing to, I don't know, USA or what? <laughs> right. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, so I think the answer is like, it's definitely possible, but I want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons. If, mm-hmm. if I'm still enjoying it, if I'm still really excited to be cycling, meeting new people, then it's like a very strong possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, but absolutely like not putting any pressure on that to happen because I don't, I don't want to sort of you know, pigeonhole myself into something that actually, you know, closer to the time yeah. doesn't feel like the right decision. So okay. it could become Bristol to Bristol. But um, right now, it's just Bristol to Beijing, and, and, and let's see where that, that takes things. Fantastic. And um, I just had a question regarding the, the costs of the trip. I, I understand your fundraising is going towards the fundraising. For the cost of the trip, did you have sponsorships or anything that covered some of the equipment and gear you needed, or how did you manage all that? Yeah. So, yeah, all, all the money raised like uh, through the Virgin Money Giving page, like that is 100% to the charities costs of the trip are completely separate. Mm-hmm. We're very fortunate to have uh, two amazing sponsors. One of them is Newton Europe, uh, which is a kind of consultancy, operational consultancy. And the other is Velocity Black, which is kind of like a concierge service um, on your smartphone. Oh, so okay. those are our two sponsors who, you know, have made this trip possible. So it's it's really amazing to have their support. And actually with Velocity Black, we're doing a series of uh, videos like mini docs, which probably after the present pandemic, pandemic, yeah, let's call it a pandemic. Yeah. After this pandemic dies down, then the first one of those videos will come out and I'm really excited to kind of do some more filming along the way with them. And yeah, and I'm doing a bit of filming with my own camera. I'm kind of very much in two minds between like how to how to enjoy the trip and how to film, you know, like how to kind of marry the two together because, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're enjoying a moment, when, when you're in the moment, I find it's like, I just want to be in the moment rather than just say, Oh, hold on a sec. Let me get out the camera. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working that one through. (laughs) Awesome. Is there anything you'd like to add that I might've missed and not touched upon? Um, can I think for a second? All the time in the world. What else? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess there's, I feel we've had a, a pretty decent discussion. Okay, you know, I've, I've got one thing in my mind, so I can sort of, if, if we want to mm-hmm. run into that again or something then. So um, I guess the, the other, the final thing I feel is like really important to share is just to say like, like not only is, is the bike called uh, Chris, and I should have made that clear that Chris is, is my brother's middle name. His, his name is John Christopher Grenfell Shaw, but you know, also the, the trip is kind of dedicated to him. It's in, in his memory. And you know, I think we, we all know people who, who have passed before their time, who have died before their time. And like, you know, do, do John and do them like the, the honor, if you like, of living your life to the full. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're so lucky. We're so, so lucky. So just do what makes you happy and, and just get out and live it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Luke, thanks again for, for being on the show. I, I really appreciate um, your time. And I realize that Although this podcast episode was not as focused on the biking aspect as uh, they often are, I think it was a, a fantastic conversation. 
it has a lot of meaning and I think it, it plays so many different ways into people's lives, you know, where people dream of going on that bike tour and like you said, embrace life and live it and, and don't not do the things you've always dreamed about doing because you never know what'll happen a, a year later or even a day later. So yeah, appreciate it so much. Oh no, thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. I know, I know I talked a bit too much, but um, really appreciate you, you having me on the show. So thank you. No problem. And uh, I'll be following you along and uh, we'll get in touch and we'll talk more about a few little things that uh, if you have any questions or um, yeah, as you go on your tour. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to those chats as well. And um, yeah, take care. All right. Bye bye. All right. Bye. I just want to take a quick minute here to thank Luke for such a deep and impactful interview. As promised, if you're interested, you can check out the intro episode of his, well, I guess not really episode, but the intro to his podcast called Facing Up. It will be posted right after my messages and stuff. So check it out and I hope you enjoy. In the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have a chance to talk with Michael Conti, an American ultra distance endurance cyclist that came first place in a race across the West in 2015. And then in 2018, he came fourth overall and first American overall in the race across America. That is one of the most massive supported races in the world. And he did extremely well. So we have a pretty awesome conversation about what it takes to make it, what he did for training, um, and then all about the race. So guys, I hope you enjoy. Tune in next episode and uh, it will be all about ultra distance racing. Bye-bye. I want to end my show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I receive from you regularly. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and my new touring tips page, which is slowly getting created. I'll also be integrating the Touring Talk podcast episodes into the Touring Tips section so you can listen to or read on whatever topics you like. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can also become one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. Much appreciated and keep on peddling. Welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of cancer, which had already spread to my lungs. I didn't think I would see Christmas. Two years later, I am still here after facing a series of challenges. Chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy, and much worse, at the beginning of my chemo, the death of my brother John. I have learned the hard way, the importance of facing up to challenges and realizing that for as long as life continues, you have got to make the most of it. That led me to try and create and seize opportunities in my own life. I did a master's at Oxford, competed in and won triathlons, and traveled in the Middle East and Central Asia. 
This culminated on the 1st of January 2020 with me setting off on a tandem bike from Bristol in the UK to Beijing. I was joined by other individuals with cancer. I call us cam lovers, someone living with cancer, facing daily challenges and uncertainties, and yet we can live a rich and fulfilled life even with cancer. Together, through Cycling the Tandem, we began to rewrite the narrative of what's possible with a cancer diagnosis. COVID-19 has forced me to pause the trip, and here's a new opportunity, setting up this podcast. I have become fascinated with how we can deal with difficulties with the best possible attitude, or indeed create opportunities from them. This podcast is all about facing up to challenges in the most positive way. Each episode, I will have a discussion, a fireside chat if you will, with a person just like you who has had to face up to a particular challenge. The Facing Up podcast is all about exploring the stories of these individuals and how they tackled challenges and perhaps created or seized opportunities from the situation they were in. I'll also be talking to experts and thought leaders who can share their insights with us on how we can approach challenges. I'm hoping that together we can learn from these individuals, be informed with new knowledge, be inspired by their stories, and be ready to face up to difficulties in our own lives, energized and reassured we are not alone. I think this is so important because dealing with challenges is fundamental to living our best life today, tomorrow, and each day after that. I'm excited to have a range of different people on this podcast. Some you may have heard of, others you won't. Some you might agree with, others you may not. This is because there are many individuals out there facing challenges in their own way. I want to be challenged and learn, and hopefully you do too. And when I restart my ride to Beijing, this podcast will continue. And I will share the stories of people I meet along the way. People in different places, with different backgrounds and different perspectives on the world. I'm really excited to hear and learn from their stories and to share them with you. This is an experiment for me. I don't have any experience in podcasting, so I'm hoping this will develop organically. The episodes are deliberately left unpolished, leaving them honest and authentic. I'm also passionate about developing this podcast as a safe space and supportive environment where we can grow together. These conversations aim to deal with difficult questions in an empowering way. They are not easy or straightforward, and nor are the challenges that we face or indeed our lives. It would do a disservice to you and my guests to shorten them, cheapening the conversation and cheating you. I'm very excited, but quite nervous, to share these podcasts with you. I don't know where this is going yet, and I would love to know what you find most valuable. So please let me know what you like and what you don't. And if you know an individual you'd like to hear on Facing Up, let me know. Please subscribe to Facing Up on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow Luke Grenfell Shaw on social media for updates and previews. Please go to my website, lukegrenfellshaw.com, I love an original name, for more info about me, my blog, and what I'm getting up to. Also, please tell your friends and family about Facing Up if you think it will add value to their lives. I'm hoping this will help us all live more positively together. So, without further ado, join me on this journey of Facing Up, which I hope will inform, energise and inspire. Oh, 
want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.